That's the way to make them learn, Miss Honey, she said. You take it from me, it's no good just telling them. You've got to hammer it into them. There's nothing like a little twisting and twiddling to encourage them to remember things. It concentrates their minds wonderfully. You could do them permanent damage, Miss Trunchbull, Miss Honey cried out. Oh, I have. I'm quite sure I have, the Trunchbull answered, grinning. Eric's ears will have stretched quite considerably in the last couple of minutes. They'll be much longer now than they were before. But there's nothing wrong with that, Miss Honey. I'll give him an interesting pixie look for the rest of his life. No, we would like you to record. Oh, I hadn't. Sorry, I didn't prep you for this. I don't know if it, it, if possible, can you record however you were recording today, except for with your actual mic while doing the Zoom? Done. Or happening. Okay. Yeah. Um, great. So you're recording, Justin. Tap your mic and make sure we're getting levels. Everybody, tap their mic. Um, we've had we've had some people recording themselves, thinking they're using a nice mic, but actually using their tiny little computer mic in a uh, issues before, so we're uh, we're never going to let that happen again. Um, all right, so here's the opening bit. Um, one of our friend podcasts is called Big Campaign Stories. It's an actual play, tabletop role-playing podcast, and they always start with a lightsaber check. And a lightsaber check is where each of their players rolls a 20-sided die, and if they roll a 20, they roll it again. And if they roll a t- second 20, then something really good happens in the session. An exploding die, as it were? Is that what that's called? That's what that's called. Two 20s or a good thing happening? Uh, Uh, When you roll the highest number on a die and get to re-roll the die, and this continues to happen until you get a number that is not the highest number on the die. Uh, It's usually a mechanic deployed when you want like the very slim possibility of completely absurd things <laughs> happening, right. um, and uh, it's a it's a fun mechanic that is uh, that shows up in a lot of. I games. couldn't. I love the idea of the lightsaber check, but I couldn't think of what you know. We're not a tabletop role playing actual play podcast, so I couldn't. And I'm not the dungeon master, so I couldn't think of like what would be a great thing that would happen if somebody were to actually get a lightsaber. The best thing I could think of is I will take you out for ice cream, if 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 you if you roll two twenties. But I also have a quiz. So let's, let's uh, Justin, do you want to do your lightsaber check? Yeah, what do I, I go to roll20.com? Yeah. Use this link. Oh, roll a die. Okay. All right. Rolling. Do I uh, go? 13. All right. Bag. Um, I, I kind of want to roll a real Yeah, let's die. do it. All right, go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. I promise I won't lie. That's a 10. Okay, I'm going to do mine. 11. That, that is how the lightsaber checks in big campaign stories usually go as well. Mm. Um, the guests all right. so if they get If they get a 20 and then get a 20 again, then like what, I, what I've, usually I've, It's occurs? never happened that I'm aware of, but it, what I would imagine would be like an NPC shows up and gives somebody like a private jet or, you know, like a helicopter or something. You know, I, I mean, nice. or, a, or it could be like, a character is near death and an NPC shows up and heals them completely or something. You know, there, there, there is a, a the, the, the DM files that lightsaber check away for an extreme bit of luck. Um, and nice. I, I guess, a, I guess yeah. they call it lightsaber checks because it would be kind of like finding a lightsaber while you were walking down the sidewalk. But we could ask Jeff where that actually comes from. 
That's great. I uh, yeah, that's it's sort of a good games will generally have some way for the players to kind of assert narrative control like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I love that. The uh, the, uh, the fantasy flight game Star Wars game has a mechanic like that where uh, the players roll dice at the beginning and those dice generate either light side points or dark side points. Mm. And um, a player can flip a light side point over whenever they want and basically have something good happen. Um, however, whenever that light side point gets flipped over, it becomes a dark side point. Uh, and the DM can do the same thing, like flip a dark side point and equally have something occur. It's a very nice, like abstract metagame mechanic that returns the game to like a storyteller game. Can either of you answer the question of what are the odds of rolling two twenties, uh, uh, concurrently on a 20 set? Yes. <laughs> Go. What are the odds? <laughs> One in 400. You, you nailed it. I mean, it's pretty easy because it's just, it's just 20 and 20. I've been using AI. I recently asked the AI to tell me what were the odds of a 300 hitter getting at least one hit in three at-bats and four at-bats, and that was a much more complicated calculation huh. but uh oh that's great yeah what did you come up what did you what did you learn uh well it's it i have i have saved the results somewhere it's a very very complicated formula um if if you i do have the results saved but it's about it's it's cl it's on the order of 65 percent something like that a 300 you know a 300 hitter if you have if you give them three at bats will get a hit um has, yeah has has a roughly two and three chance of getting a hit in that and nice. um i also i played around with changing the batting average around and i played around with changing the number of at bats it was kind of interesting because it's not you think that would be a simple formula but it is actually a very very complicated formula it's a it's, yeah i bet so this is a special episode uh with our guest justin maybe we should introduce justin uh just in case um the listener hasn't heard justin before so we are joined by uh justin reich uh, Justin, do you want to say uh, who you are, what you're affiliated with, and what your chair is, and all of those things? Well, the most important thing about me is that my mother was a customer at Chris Bag's mother's tea shop in Graston, Massachusetts, when we were teenagers. So Chris True. and I have known each other for 30-ish, 30-plus 30 years. Um, and yep. then uh, I was a uh, college housemate of Jesse Duke's. Um, and then I did various teacherly things uh, after that. And now I'm a professor and I help teachers do their job. And, and part of the reason we wanted to do this special episode with you is that we consider you our sort of residential education specialist, even though all, all three of us are teachers. And so this is an episode it's one it's sort of similar to our um it's a, i think we're calling these recommendation shows so rather than agree on a book or a movie or something like that that we choose in advance to talk about and dissect it the way that bag and i usually do instead we're asking each of us to come with a recommendation and this time sort of inspired by project hail mary which we read uh this spring we asked everybody to recommend a work of fiction um, to uh, that that has a teacher protagonist or a teacher as a major character to recommend to the listeners. Actually, part of the whole reason I was going to have us roll a die was to determine the order of who goes first. I think we should roll a die again. We should roll a d20 yes. again for order. Um, roll for initiative. Why don't we do that? I, uh, I hit I'm a seven. Roll. Wait. 16. 
Yes, but what's your deck modifier, Justin? <laughs> it, it's got to be minus one. <laughs> you think it's I minus think one? It, could, I think it might Jesse, have been plus one in Jesse, my 20s, but it's definitely minus one now. Yeah, you, you've like shrunk to like an eight dexterity. <laughs> yeah. I think Jesse would have the highest natural dexterity of the three of us. I'll go along with that. Yeah, yeah if I put Jesse at like a, like a 14 or a plus two, I'm going to give myself a 10. And I got a 10. <laughs> I am... Wait, so do, Jesse, you so you roll the die and add two because we think your dexterity is. Oh, that that then I get an eighteen, a modified eighteen. There, you are up first. All right, so I'm just gonna lay mine out. Um, I mean, do we need to talk about the premise any more than we already have, or can we just get into it? Why did we um like what are we after when we are thinking about books with teacher protagonists well like why are we here so two answers one is that by the time this podcast goes out it will be back to school season and just like we talked to some teachers back in the beginning of the summer to get recommendations for summer reading i thought it would be fun to do something else for our teacher friends that got people excited about teaching and education in the back to school season and I also just, when we read Project Tail Mary, I thought one of the things that was interesting that we talked about was whether, um, oh, what's our protagonist's name? Um, Ryland Grace. Ryland Grace. Whether, Doctor, whether Grace is the fact that, the, to what degree the fact that he was a teacher entered into the story. Because he was a teacher, but he was not really, it's not like, the story was set in the classroom. You know, it wasn't like it was one of these stories where Ryland Grace is set to a sort of troubled, uh, you know, school and institution and has to win over, win over hard-bitten teachers or students and earn their trust and earn the respect. It wasn't one of those stories. But at the same time, it just kind of, I, I think that making him a teacher helped us like him. It also sort of set up a really lovely scene at the end. And I think it also it kind of maybe explained why he was really good at explaining physics and mathematical concepts to the audience too. And it, that just kind of got me thinking about, well, what other books use teachers as protagonists? Uh, so that's all I really have in terms of an answer to the question. But do either of you want to add anything to that? Uh, I want to ask Justin a question. Please. That's what I'm here for. Do you, since you are a teacher of teachers and a thinker about teachers, do you find yourself drawn to books that have teachers as protagonists? I don't think so, because it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. I didn't have a stable of things, which to some extent is surprising. I think we'll end up talking about this later, but, you know, um, connecting to education and learning is, is, I think, a pretty straightforward move for character development. Like a thing that you're doing when you're learning, engaging in educational systems, learning systems, is developing, is getting better, um, is expanding your mind, changing. is encountering Personal uncomfortable growth. ideas, changing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, as, as you brought this idea up, I was like, yeah, that's pretty, pretty natural. And then uh, one thing I hope we'll talk about a little later is a, a bunch of years ago, there was a wonderful Adam Gopnik article in The New Yorker about the Phantom Tollbooth. Um, where he explored uh, some of this, and uh, and we can get into that. But I, I mean, I had an easier time with movies. I mean, certainly movies are the thing that hit me first, although it's not a genre, you know, the sort of Michelle Pfeiffer movie, the L.A. teacher with a baseball bat movie. There's a kind you know. Um, Lean on me with Morgan Freeman. <clears throat> yep. Um, and uh, Oh, Captain, My Captain, Kid Kills Himself, Boarding School. What's that one? 
Dead Poets Society. Uh, Dead I thought Poets Dead Poets For a second, Society. I thought you were like protecting the identity of Dead Poets Society. <laughs> no, I, I was like, can we not? <laughs> can we not say that? Like, can we not say Dead Poets Society for some <laughs> no, reason? No, it's blank. Um, also, there's some good teacher content in The Wire. Uh, that is that is a crime that I haven't seen that because I think among educators it's considered like pretty much the best piece of fictionalized oh, yeah. media about schools. There's oh, a well, there's until, a TV until, uh, TV show out right now that teachers like. Or uh, that Quinta Bronson's um, Abbott Elementary, right, pretty Abbott remarkable Elementary. and actually like so sort of erudite about schools that like when I show it to my MIT students, I have to explain the references to them. Um, they're just all these little <laughs> slide jokes. Where there's, uh, I mean, one of the best episodes, the episode which I like, I use in class to instruct students about how schools actually work is one where the school adopts a new um, online uh, reading teaching system, um, like airdrops these tablets into school, provides almost no professional development. It's useless. The older teacher doesn't understand what's going on. And here's the spoiler um, is that she basically just starts entering scores in for the kids. Um, but uh, the, the school, the principal starts to believe that she has taught her kindergartners how to read at a fifth grade level in like the first few weeks of school on the basis of that. Um, and uh, so, and eventually she's outed um, and the and the principal is like cheating girl. Why you do that? You gotta clue me in if we're gonna do that. Um, <laughs> which is a reference to this Atlanta cheating scandal, um, where uh, in the early days of uh, high stakes testing, um, there are a bunch of uh, schools that were sort of systematically altering student scores to be able to keep up with various mandates and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, but but the, the show is full of these moments where you're like, well, it's kind of a joke, but it's actually a, re like, it's actually a reference to a <laughs> 2001 yeah. cheating scandal or whatever year it was. And, and, you know, cheating is wrong, but I think part of the reason it's so endemic in these sort of situations is that the teachers in schools are under a tremendous amount of pressure, you know, with these standardized tests. And there's a tremendous amount of incentive these days to cheat on these standardized tests. Yeah, but if you haven't watched some Abbott Elementary, it's entirely worth it, and it's funny and heartwarming. Um, they have, you know, they have a bunch of kids who are not really kid actors who play the role of kids in the show, and they're hilarious and adorable. Um, yeah, there's just so much great. about it, extremely real. Like the like the most well-informed person about everything going on in the school building is the janitor. Um, mm, yep. Like he's the one who has the most sort of global view of what is actually happening day to day in schools, which is like absolutely true. Um, yeah, ours was always the administrative assistant who actually runs the school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, um, so yeah, I guess I'm going first, and my choice uh, for a teacher protagonist um, is one of my favorite family movies, School of Rock. It was released in oh two thousand three. It um, and I kind I remember where I was because I was leading a trip in Maine for the uh, you know the fall semester program at the place we used to work with Matt Lunt, uh, our friend Matt Lunt, um, and I a think school teacher, a school teacher in now. coastal Maine. And we uh, we got back from that trip. It was a Bigelow's hiking trip, and it was kind of our last night with the students. And we were like, "Yeah, let's go out for a movie." Um, and we watched that, and we were all kind of blown away by it. But um, if you haven't seen it, School of Rock features a character played by Jack Black named Dewey Finn, and Dewey Finn is kind of a loser. Um, he's late on his rent. 
Um, he's kind of like living with his best friend who has a girlfriend. Uh, he's in a rock band, and one of the very first scenes is this like hilarious performance scene of him really. He's the lead guitar player, and he's really overselling like the kind of like heavy metal faces and stuff like that. And then in the midst of that, he tries to do a stage dive and nobody catches him. That leads to him getting kicked out of the band, his his roommates hassling him about the rent, and he gets the opportunity to take a substitute teacher job using his roommate, um, Mr. Schneebly, I can't remember what, uh, Ned Schneebly is his name, (laughs) using his credentials to get this sub job. He basically answers the phone. He's like, yeah, I'm Mr. Schneebly. He gets hired for a pretty prestigious private uh, middle school, I think. It might be elementary. The kids kids seem like they're about 10, 11, or 12, so it could be, it's either upper elementary or lower middle school. Um, And he takes that job, and uh, he's just in it for the money, He's pretty selfish. He's just sort of, you know, one of the first things he says to the principal, played by Joan Cusack, is like, you know, I hope you can pay me in cash. Um, and I have a clip from his first day that just illustrates how bad of a teacher he was. So let's, I'm going to share screen. Uh, and I should be able to share audio, share sound. Okay, let's do it with, I'm uh, looking for the right folder. Yeah. Okay, so you should be able to hear. So this is him. He's just been introduced. He uh, he starts to write Mr. Schneebly on the chalkboard, but realizes he can't spell it. So then he says to the kids, yeah, why don't you all just call me Mr. S? And then I think hopefully you'll hear this. You know what? Why don't you all just call me Mr. S? Mr. S has never taught here at Horace Green, so I want you all to be on your best behavior. So, the curriculum's on the desk, Mm -hmm. and do you have any questions? Yeah, when's lunch? The children just had their lunch. Is there anything else you need? Um, I'm a teacher. All I need are minds for molding. All right, then. Well, thanks again. You saved the day. Okay, who's got food in here? You're not gonna get in, Travel. I'm hungry. You. What do you got? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Teach. 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 All right, look, here's the deal. I've got a hangover. Who knows what that means? Doesn't that mean you're drunk? No, it means I was drunk yesterday. It means you're an alcoholic. Wrong. You wouldn't come to work hungover unless you're an alcoholic. Dude, you got a disease. Hmm, hmm. What's your name? Freddie Jones. Hmm, Freddie Jones, shut up. (laughs) Shut up. Point is, y'all can just chill today. We'll start on this crapola tomorrow. So that's day one. 
Uh, as you can hear, he's a pretty awful teacher, you know, and this is a family film. It's all being kind of played for comic effect. A lot of the humor comes from Jack Black's physical comedy, like the way when the kid says that she has food, he kind of draws a bead on her and walks very determinately right at her to steal her turkey sandwich. Um, but then time progresses and he realizes that some of the kids, some of his students are musicians and very selfishly. He figures, oh, I can recruit these kids to be in my rock band and I can win the battle of the bands and stick it to my, you know, my former bandmates. So he's still behaving kind of selfishly, but he starts teaching them how to play rock and roll music. And in doing that, he starts to really care about his students. You know, it's a classic, you know, redemption arc for a selfish guy who who's who's you know, instincts to nurture children kicks in and he starts to realize he's really, really good at connecting with the students and he starts to really care about them. Um, but then, of course, there's the possibility that he'll be discovered as a fraud and there's the battle of the bands and so all sorts of other things ensue, uh, which I will not spoil. Um, but what I, what I like about it is there's just these wonderful scenes in the classroom with Jack Black and the kids and the students. And like that first one I played for you is pretty funny, but over time he starts really kind of nurturing and paying attention to the students in a neat way. And he has a lot of these little one-on-ones where he praises them for some talent they have and kind of helps them overcome some challenge they're having in their life, shows them that he cares about them. Um, and I, I think also what I understand about this movie is that they didn't that when they filmed it, they filmed it very similar to the in a, in a way that's very similar to the actual plot. They brought the students together, got them to know each other, put them in the classroom. And then he came in the like in that scene that you heard, like, I think that might have been their first time that they met him. And so he also as the actor with working with this group of students who were recruited because of their musical ability and not their acting ability. It's kind of like what you were saying about Abbott Elementary. He also kind of built a rapport with those kid actors, too. And I think you can see that in the scenes. You know, when he's doing his physical comedy, you can see them laughing and reacting to them. When he's kind of, you know, bucking them up and praising them, I think they're they're reacting. You can tell they enjoy being with this guy. And I think that's just really fun. It's, it's really, really moving. And there's a moment where uh, one of the girls, Tamika, um, they're going to do a performance, and she's a very, very good singer, but she has stage fright. And uh, I want to play that to you, too. It's just a really lovely moment. Freddie, come on, man. We gotta focus up, you guys. We gotta nail this audition. Mr. S? What's up? I don't think I can sing. What are you talking about? Come here. So, Tamika, what's going on? What do you mean you can't sing? I don't feel good. I feel sick. Just let Alicia and Marta do it. No! They can't sing like you can. I need you in the chorus. What is it? Are you nervous? Yeah, why? Well, what are you afraid of? They're going to laugh at me. What? Why would they laugh at you? I don't know. Because I'm fat. Tamika. <sighs> hey, you've got something everybody wants. You've got talent, girl. You have an incredible singing voice, and I'm not just saying that. You heard of Aretha Franklin, right? Okay, she's a big lady, but when she starts singing, she blows people's minds. Everybody wants to party with Aretha! 
And um, you know who else has a weight issue? Who? Me. But once I get up on stage, start doing my thing, people worship me because I'm sexy and chubby, man. Why aren't you on a diet? Because I like to eat. Is that such a crime? Look, the, you know what? That's not even the point. The thing is, you're a rock star now. All you gotta do, you just gotta go out there, just rock your heart out. People are gonna dig you, I swear. Let's just go out there, show them what we got. What do you say? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Let's rock. Okay, we are good to go. No, we're not. Freddie took off. Whoa, cliffhanger. I know, classic, uh, classic escalating tension. But, you know, I just find those moments where Jack Black as Dewey Finn is sort of counseling the students, cheering them up, praising their skills. They just feel very they feel very authentic in their acting and their setup. And, you know, I remember being blown away by this film. Roger Ebert at the time, at the end, he also gave it a very glowing review. And he said, here's a movie that proves you can make a family film that's alive, well acted and smart perceptive and funny and you know it's like it's not easy to do that right you know to make a film that like kids and adults would enjoy that feels quality right that feels authentic to adults too so that is my recommendation for a piece of art or culture with a teacher protagonist the film school of rock 2003 uh starring Jack Black. Also, Joan Cusack as the principal is so good. She's also a lot of wonderful physical comedy. She's real. There's this one scene where she's talking with Jack Black's character, but he's put on Stevie Nicks to try to win her over. And she's talking with him, but she, all she's really doing is like rocking out to the Stevie Nicks while listening to him talk. And it's just, it's so well played. She's this principal too, who does deeply care about the children, but also is under a lot of pressure to maintain the reputation of her school. So she finds herself being kind of overly strict and more strict than she wants to be. You know, there's this one moment where she's kind of dressing down a student for bad behavior. And she's like, you know, it, it's OK. You know, just just try to do better. Do you want to do you want me to give you a hug? And the, the girl's crying and she's like, you know, kind of cringes away from her. And, you know, she's 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 having a hard time finding that balance of, you know, being strict and and and. Uh, interceding and controlling behavior um, and and still showing her compassionate love for the kids. So she kind of goes on a journey All the too. things that Jack Black uh, so does naturally, that Dewey Finn does naturally, that uh, connecting and relationship right. building is what the veteran principal doesn't have in her arsenal. Right, exactly. And she, and she comes to recognize that strength in him even as, you know, we, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but of course he is a fraud and that is going to create problems for the school too. And also he's not actually teaching anything <laughs> academic at all other than maybe, you know, some guitar scales and things like that. So, so, you know, there are some things that have to be contended with in terms of his accountability. Uh, I was just going to say like the, 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 the contrast between the two of those, there's so much silence in the first one. Um, and you actually can hear Joan Cusack's footsteps kind of recede into the distance. And just the the pacing of that first section is like such a piece of comic um, setup. Like it's so yeah. classic and it's like you're just you're waiting. 
And then the second piece, there's almost no silence except for the the moments when the kid is clearly like nervous. And right. uh, I just I love the way that we see that transformation uh, from the sparseness of the language in the first bit to the second piece, which I think probably at that point, even though I'm sure it's still very funny, we are moving more towards a like positive resolution. Um, and uh, God, Jack Black is good. I mean, yeah. even even just in audio format, you're like, this guy is really this guy is really knows what he's doing. Yeah, the little flourishes like when is lunch? Yeah. You know, just like the way he pronounces lunch. <laughs> you know, or um, yeah, and that scene where he that you were talking about when he it's you know Joan Cusack the principal walks him in. The first you see them together in the hallway, and it's physically hilarious because Jack Black is five six and Joan Cusack is five nine, and she's wearing heels, and he's wearing kind of like a 1950s idea of what a teacher he's wearing sort of like a a blazer and a kind of collegiate scarf sort of walking next to her looking very sort of official and busily and then she walks into the classroom first kind of gets the kids attention they all snap to and then she says this is mr schneebly and then his entrance he kind of is leaning back a little bit and kind of nodding his head slowly as she's introducing him as you know sort of you know, mm -hmm, that's right. Yeah, the pro teacher is here. There's, I mean, it's it's this. It's just wonderful physical comedy, and there's so much going on with that that pacing. I mean, the other thing in the silence in the second clip is you can hear the battle of the bands in the background too, yeah. like the sound, and you can hear the musicians in the background sort of talking to each other. The, there is excellent sound design and and realism in a way too. I mean, Richard Linklater is a really really wonderful filmmaker, you know, and the idea that he would make a kind of sweet comedic family film is is great i didn't know that Linklater directed that that's uh yeah that's crazy yeah and i think also like the fact i think that explains a lot of that kind of authentic feeling interaction i think that's what he does well is kind of build these sets and frames he's sort of he you know the idea that we're going to just get all the kids together they're going to get to know each other and then they're going to be filming these scenes, but they're going to be on a parallel journey with the characters of learning to play these songs and getting to know Jack Black. That that feels like a very Richard Linklater like move to me. You know that he's he's kind of blending the real and the fictitious in a way that that leads to a more authentic feeling performance, which I think you see in Boyhood too. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, I'll, gi I'll give you my one my one grumpy. Uh, education professional uh, interaction. I've been thinking a lot. I'll probably talk some about teacher tropes. Mm. Like what are the kinds of teachers that are out there? Yeah. And the the natural teaching genius is a is a problematic trope right. for the profession. Right. Um, you know, all you have to do is connect with the kids. And be authentic. And, yeah. And be authentic and learning follows. And it's like, have you ever watched a really good music teacher try to help 27 different kids who are on nine different instruments actually try to learn music? It is incredible what those people are doing. And it is not, you know, it's true that making that connection with young people can be a vital part of a learning relationship, but there is a lot more to it than that. So the, so the kind of, I mean, I just think it plays into tropes of like, Teaching's not that hard. The people who want to do it just like summer vacation, you know, anybody can step in there and, you know, have a bunch of kids with the battle of the bands in a few weeks kind of thing. I mean, I, you know, hopefully the viewer can separate fantasy from reality and, and that you, you pick up on what is authentic, which is this this 
yeah, some people are better at building relationships and, than, than others. And also, that's not necessarily something Jack Black's character was good at at first either, you know, and you can be inspired by that. But yeah, he's not actually a very good teacher. I mean, there are some fun scenes where he writes rock songs with the students. You could maybe believe Dewey Finn would be good at teaching these students who actually, by the way, already kind of know how to play their instruments. They're basically already sort of well-trained classical and jazz students, and he's just basically adapting adapting that training to rock and roll. And yeah, of course it's not going to be that easy. Um, but it, it's, I still find those moments inspiring. And so did Matt it's Lunt, and he's a real teacher. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, Justin, what you're talking about, there's this really, in most professions, there's this very strange, totally false dichotomy that you have to pick the art or the science. Right. And it, this happens in triathlon and coaching all the time. Uh, there's like people who are like, you have to only train by feel. And then there's this other camp that's like, you have to like train by data. And it's just this like, you're like, we can do both. Like both are possible. You can be an intuitionist and an empiricist. At the you same time. Same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also to your point, Justin, though, you're right. It, I, I think like a more challenging story and maybe – you know, you could somebody like Linklater could take this on would be like, try to tell a similarly fun and heartwarming story, but not make it be about rock and roll. Right. I mean, rock and roll is easy. Right. The kids are going to enjoy like writing songs about sticking it to the man. But like have a math teacher who actually is attending to state curriculum standards, who is also as popular as Jack Black's character in this. I mean, that would be fun. To see, and you know, I mean, we're gonna factor polynomials. <laughs> we're gonna foil, foil. I mean, you and I were listening to interview tape of a teacher who sort of seems like that. You know, just this morning, yeah. you know, for the project that you're working on, we've encountered teachers like that, and that is that's something that takes not only natural talent and energy and empathy and compassion, but also years to master that craft too. You know, and, and there are teachers out there who do that. It's really impressive. Um, Chris, you were next. I rolled a seven. Yeah. Okay, Chris um, Bag, what is your, what is your recommendation? Okay, uh, well, as usual, uh, well, I went wide but shallow, uh, which is what one does when one is overcommitted. Uh, uh, I have four books, two of which oh. I am prepared to talk about. All right. Um, so uh, I was thinking about uh, teacher protagonist books that I like. And I was like, oh, I think that these sort of uh, exist on a spectrum uh, from comic to this is not fun. Um, mm. And uh, so the two books that I, I am ready to talk about, um, and I think I'll probably focus on Blue Angel. Uh, so on the comic side of things, uh, Richard Russo's very funny book about an English depart departmental head at a small state university in Pennsylvania, Straight Man. Uh, great book. Uh, it involves a uh, nasal mutilation with the spiral bound notebook. Uh, as, uh, yes, it is, uh, it is one of the only books that I have laughed so hard in public that I have dropped the book. Uh, it is excellent. <laughs> wow. And if you have ever worked on the faculty of any sort of private institution in an English department, completely nails all of the tropes and, uh, and the stereotypes, um, trending towards the, uh, less comic I threw up here, uh, Michael Chabon's second novel wonder boys um about a again uh english faculty member uh, who manages to lose the transcript of his uh the manuscript of his novel uh mm. due to a student of his 
Uh, Francine Prose's alarming and wonderful novel, Blue Angel, about a uh, English department faculty member um, who ends up um, getting involved with a student um, in a very surprising and not uh, to script manner. Uh, I, mm. I, I, it, reading Blue Angel is a process of, be, of having your expectations steadily upended. Um, it's, I, th- I think it's probably the best book out of these four. Um, and uh, David Mamet's Oleana, which I think would be really interesting. I wonder if it's been staged in recent years. I kind of, I, I, who, if somebody were to stage it, I think it'd be a really good idea. But I could also, I could also imagine people wanting to stay as far away from Oleana as possible. Uh, it involves a, like most David Mamet plays, a power dynamic. Um, and, mm. uh, and resolves in a way that is, again, really, really uh, alarming. But I've got the opening few paragraphs of Blue Angel queued up. Um, cool. I also have the opening few paragraphs of Straight Man queued up. So uh, what do you guys want? Do you want straight-up comedy or do you want uh, tragic comedy? I think maybe tragic comedy. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, more tension there. Okay. Um, so this is the uh, this is the first three paragraphs of Francine Prose's uh, Blue Angel. Swenson waits for his students to complete their private rituals, adjusting zippers and caps, arranging the pens and notebooks so painstakingly chosen to express their tender young selves, the fidgety ballets that signal their weekly submission and reaffirm the social compact to be stuck in this room for an hour without real food or TV. He glances around the seminar table, counts nine. Good, everyone's here. Then riffles through the manuscript they're scheduled to discuss, pauses and says, is it my imagination or have we been seeing an awful lot of stories about humans having sex with animals? The students stare at him appalled. He can't believe he said that. His pathetic stab at humor sounded precisely like what it was, a question he'd dreamed up and rehearsed as he walked across North Quad, past the Gothic Greystone Cloisters, the Founder's Chapel, the lovely 200-year-old maples just starting to drop the orange leaves that lie so thickly on the cover of the Euston College Viewbook. He'd hardly noticed his surroundings, so blindly focused was he on the imminent challenge of leading a class discussion of a student story in which a teenager, drunk and frustrated after a bad date with his girlfriend, rapes an uncooked chicken by the light of the family fridge. How is Swenson supposed to begin? What he really wants to ask is, was this story written expressly to torment me? What little sadist thought it would be fun to watch me tackle the technical flaws of a story that spends two pages describing how the boy cracks the chicken's ribcage to better fit the slippery visceral cavity around his throbbing heart on? But Danny Liebman, whose story it is, isn't out to torture Swenson. He just wanted something interesting for his hero to do. (laughs) So it's it's a workshop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the teacher in question, uh, is, uh, is a creative writing, uh, teacher and, um, yeah, is, uh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, like I think anybody who has taught creative writing at any level, um, eventually bumps into 
I mean, something as alarming as this. Um, but yeah. the things the things that I really love about this is, I mean, Francine Prose. I mean, I don't know, like another one of those people who whose name is just so wonderfully fit, like suited to the thing that she does. Um, but uh, you know that section about the orange leaves that lie so thickly on the cover of mm-hmm. the Houston College View book. I mean, as an interjection, too, right? Like he's mid-thought about the you know chicken rogering uh, 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 submission to the workshop while he has that sort of reverie about the orange leaves. Yeah, and it's just I have to step back that the the technical term for when a person's name is what they do is nominative determinism. Ah, I love that. Do you have another example? Uh, I have a good friend who keeps a Twitter thread of everyone they can find. Um, you know, like Mr. Banks, who's the CEO of a bank and all the, you know, he's got 50 or 60 people who, who, you know, that's just impossibly well aligned with, uh, with what their name Patricia is. Patricia Highsmith is a pretty, I mean, Ooh, yeah. know, she, she, she has rather high craft. Is it, how, how handy is this Twitter for, thread? I want to, I'll find it. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I, that that feels true to life. It, it does feel. Is this a college? It's a college yeah, level it's, it's sort like of writing a, workshop. It's sort of a fancy college, um, and uh, I, I do feel like there's always a moment where undergraduate students realize that they can write about sex with no penalty, yeah. and they can even write about kind of gross sex. And their professor and their fellow workshop students are going to feel obligated to take that seriously. They could even say write about a crush they have on one of their fellow students or write about I've actually encountered this a you know weekend tryst they had with one of their fellow <laughs> students thinly veiled you know with pseudonyms um but everybody knows what's going on and uh it, it, do, it does seem like there there's a certain amount of boundary testing and experimenting that happens in in those workshops yeah the thing about the thing I love about this opening passage I mean this is a book about the um the problems of sex and Mm -hmm. the things the things that it can that it can do um obviously this is an extreme example with the chicken but even that first sentence um private complete zippers caps pens Mm -hmm. uh tender fidgety submission Uh, in one sentence Francine Prose sets the stage. It's like you don't even know that this is a book about sex, but some part of you is like, "Oh, mm-hmm. what's happening?" <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, I mean, she—if you've ever read her book, *Reading Like a Writer*, um, which is just required reading, I think, for anybody who does this kind of work, um, she does the same kind of very close analysis of like oh, this like wonderful spectrum of books. Um, and uh, really teaches you to like look at words like this. I mean, she really, she really focuses on diction in a way that I think is uh, is really impressive, both in her analysis and her own work. Um, yeah, I love this book. Blue Angel is uh, like a lot of Francine Prose's books, sort of like doesn't fly in the stratosphere, but it is like it's it sort of cruises at a moderately high altitude. Mm. She, what th- fraction of books about teachers are about English teachers? I, you know, as I was like running it's, through this list, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> we write from our own experience. Yeah. It's interesting, too. It makes me wonder. I, you know, when I proposed the idea of teacher protagonists, I was imagining that we would we would be encountering heroic teacher protagonists. And the way you're describing this book 
seems like maybe maybe there's something redeeming about the story, but this is uh, this is about um, moral ambiguity, right? This is a book about a problematic relationship. Um, you know, maybe maybe there's an important lesson learned. Maybe there's some growth, but you know, this isn't uh, Doctor Grace saving the world or Jack Black, you know, uh, encouraging some students to feel better about themselves and to. It's not. It's not very. Oh, Captain, my captain. <laughs> no. no. Um, I, I heard this book described as uh, a man crashing his way towards a new life. And I was like, mm. oh, whoa. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know you could do that. Um, that seems like another thing. Mr. Holland's opus. Yes. Um, is one of those. Um, mm. I, I, I feel like there's got to be uh, not the protagonist, but the sort of antagonist. We, maybe we, I'll talk about a teacher antagonist, but uh, Election. Oh, um, Tracy Flick. Yes. And... Mm. Uh, Who's the lead actress uh, there? Reese Witherspoon. Uh, Reese Witherspoon. There's also, of course, the police song, um, Don't Stand So Close to Me, in which a teacher protagonist is uncomfortably attracted uh, to a student. Didn't know that. Didn't know that, oh. that, was, that that's what that... Don't stand. Didn't know that that was the uh, subtext of that song. It's not even really subtext. The first line is, young teacher, the subject of schoolgirl fantasy. She wants him so badly, knows what she wants to be. Inside him, temptation. This girl's an open page. Wet bus stop. She's waiting. This girl is half his age. That's the first verse. Yeah, that's from text. memory. That's not subtext. That's, <laughs> that's just text. <laughs> yeah, it's not like Francine yeah, prose talking about zippers or something <laughs> yeah. like that. To lead us, it's like right. right this is a great. Yeah, the, this is denotation and connotation. <laughs> right, 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 right. There's also a line in that song where at one point he says. You know, the girl's too close and he starts to stake and cough, just like the old man in that book by Nabokov, which is very, oh it's, a very it's, it's a very sting sort of, I'm sting, I'm very literary. Seriously. I reference, I reference Nabokov did you ca- in a rock and well, roll the, song. Did you catch that? Yeah. The issue is, I mean, a neat thing about kids smart. is uh, Judy Bloom has this line that um, if what a kid will do if they read a book that's inappropriate for them is put it down. Hmm. That you actually don't have to spend a lot of time like figuring out whether or not something is right for a kid to read, because they'll either not get it or they'll put it down. You know, so you're probably listening to "Don't Stand Next to Me" like in 1983 in the back of your, you know, mom's Volvo or Jeep or whatever, and you just like are bopping along don't the stand. chorus. Don't stand. <laughs> don't stand. Don't, don't stand. stand. You know, and there's all this stuff about. Like, you know, some adult like, yeah, sex with yeah, a minor, I hate it when people and that just stand washes so right over yeah, yeah. your head. I know I've yeah. never listened closely to the words. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is this is a, a, a cautionary tale, perhaps. No, but that's a good point, Justin. I, I think there are a lot of songs like that as a kid that I just did not process the the subtext or even the text, the the sexual text. Well, Christo, what is your case for somebody who might feel the idea of a college professor having an inappropriate relationship with a college student to be icky and something they don't want to read about? What's your case for reading about it anyway? Hmm. Um, let's see. I, I mean, I understand the ickiness, but I, I've never found myself offended by subject material. Hmm. I, I, I've always, and it's, and I, that is definitely like, I don't know. I, I think that that is a good thing. I think we, I think we are taught, I, I, I think I was taught to read the book, 
you know, kind of no matter what and like think about what the author is trying to do and whether or not the ideas that are being put forth are in good faith or in bad faith. And and that's and I think that's really like the dividing line. Like, am I reading something that is reductive and sort of looking at the the people in it um, ogling? Like, are we ogling or are we putting up a situation here that is complicated and worthy of storytelling? Because every situation is worthy of storytelling. Um, I just rewatched um, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, mm. which, you know, is a book and a movie that you could be forgiven for being like, there's some icky stuff in here. Um, but like, it's just the product of a journalist who's, who, whose whole aim was to kind of change the way that we do storytelling. And that's all like ended up in the way that we do storytelling today for probably for better. Um, well, and it, it's a great example. Let me reframe the question based on that, because to me, the value of reading or or watching Fear and Loathing Las Vegas is it is purely aesthetic. You know, Hunter S. Thompson is just a maddeningly brilliant writer. It doesn't really matter what he's talking about. The fact that he's talking about his own drug use and other potentially sketchy activities. Doesn't the lawyer pick up an underage woman at oh, some yes. point? I can't quite. Yeah. Just the fact that 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 is the subject matter is almost it's it's really just just you know material that you put into the uh shedder chipper yeah. that is hunter thompson's prose and then see what kind of glorious mess comes out the other side you know and so i guess in that sense maybe i'm i'm not asking as much about like why is it okay to read a book about something morally uncomfortable but what are what are the strengths you know are you reading it for the great for the great sentences, are you reading it for the characterization? Are you reading it for the honest treatment of the the moral ambivalence? Are you reading it for the ideas? I think Francine Prose, more than a lot of writers I know, does like high psychological realism better than like anybody I've ever read. Um, I don't know, maybe John Cheever is up there. Who knows? Um, mm -hmm. Some other there's some other writers like that. Um, because this is just like classic American psychological realism. There's really nothing like crazy happening from a formal perspective. Um, and you really get to like experience this world and experience the, the, the wild changes of favor. Um, and I think she does such an amazing job of like seeding this narrative inside a narrator who is kind of coming unglued, but you don't know it because you're in his head and and it's not until the like final pages of the book that you're like oh no <laughs> um and it's kind of similar to fear and loathing like it is a ride that you get on and then you get off of it later and maybe your world hasn't been enriched but it's been enlarged mm. Mm. And that's why I read books. I mean, like, I like grumpy books. I, I am, you know, I'm, I like a, I like a dour book. I mean, I'm interested in that stuff. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and you're, you're drawn to, to damaged characters yes, too. Totally. Yeah. Characters who are struggling with something and maybe behave destructively to themselves or to other people. Um, I think schools are probably particularly great places for some of those kinds of stories because in their ideal, 
they are kind of safe, protective, nurturing kind of places. But we all know that there's a kind of terror in schools, too, that schools are places where we harm yeah. people. Um, and, you know, in, in particular, one of the ways that we harm people is that the trust that we put in adults is broken yep. regularly. Um, <laughs> yes. Maybe not as, you know, I, I should say, I say that as a person who loves schools, yeah. who thinks that schools are one of the most wonderful, you know, my life is devoted to schools. But if you, you know, if you devote your life to schools, you have to be like, wow, there, you know, there are some terrible things here and they are made more terrible by the fact that it should be a place that's safe and nurturing. Totally. And I, I mean, I think in, even in a, a school that is good at nurturing, that is a good very nurturing place some of that like learning that your teachers will like violate the trust that you've put in them um is and hopefully that that like violation of trust is mostly just like learning that adults are human and they make mm. normal and like non-traumatizing -tra <laughs> errors um that you know that you learn that your teachers are fallible and do like dumb and mostly harmless things and like hopefully in a really good school that's the lesson they're learning and not like not a darker um not not the kind of harm that takes place in blue angel or or oleana my god i was i was always shocked as a teacher at how forgiving my children yeah. were you know like as a first year teacher i made errors all the time i lived in this funny house i lived in an apartment where the building was three stories, but we had the middle of all three floors. So we lived in like a very vertical apartment. So when you walked downstairs to the first floor to leave, you walked kind of right into the refrigerator and then you turned left and walked out the door. And on the side of the refrigerator, I started keeping a list of terrible mistakes that I made as a teacher for which children forgave me, you know, things where like I had to come in the next day and be like, yeah, that reading was way too hard for you. It didn't make any sense. Did it? And they're like, no, but you can explain it. <laughs> you know, yeah. You're sort of expecting them to hate you, and they're like, "Meh, yeah, yeah." Kids are amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it is as you're thinking about it, having a romantic relationship. I mean, with a college professor and a college student, that's not as egregious as an adult, say, and a high school student, or you know, or you could imagine even worse scenarios, and they have in fact happened. Um, I think, you know, I'm probably intrigued enough to explore that and read it if I feel like it is going to... And this is similar to what I said about N.K. Jemisin's, um The Fifth Season, is I, I, I want it to deal honestly with the harm, <laughs> the potential of oh, trauma. Yeah. If it's just a character study, you know, sort of, I feel like Philip Roth might have written a book where he just examines the psychology of the college professor who's sleeping with one of his students without ever really necessarily considering what effect that might have on the student who's 30 years younger than the college professor. You know, that might be a little bit annoying to me, that sort of post-sexual uh, revolution, amoral, you know, we're just going to kind of examine this character and nothing is wrong and nothing is right and, you know, life is difficult. Um, but if it's a, if it's a book that's, that's dealing honestly with the destructiveness of the behavior, which I think, you know, A Visit from the Goon Squad does, yeah. um, and then, then I think I'm probably much more there for it. I'm much more interested in it. Yeah, I think you should read it. It's, it's, it's an easy one, too. It's, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not a big book. It's like a, it's like a nice little 280-page novel. Thank God. Well, we've done 30 minutes, yeah. so that would leave 15 for Justin. So I think we should move on to the third, and then if we want to have a little more discussion after that, we can decide to do that.
So I also violated the assignment to find a teacher protagonist and decided to share one of the great teacher antagonists, um, which is Miss Trunchbull in Road Dolls, Matilda. Um, perha perhaps the evilest teacher um, that ever was. You know, Roald Dahl has a great description of his writing where he says, basically, for whatever character I have, I just make their characteristics as extreme as I can possibly imagine. You know, if there's a skinny character, they're tall and thin and all skin and bones. And if they're a fat character, they're sort of enormously fat. Um, and, uh, you know, Matilda is this young girl who uh, is uh, a genius, uh, preternaturally intelligent, eventually develops telekinetic powers and magical powers. Um, but she's sent to the school where her classroom teacher is Miss Honey, who is described as mild and sweet and quiet. I'll give you just a short quote. She seemed to understand totally the bewilderment and fear that so often overwhelms young children who for the first time in their lives are herded into a classroom and told to obey orders. Some curious warmth that was almost tangible shone out of Miss Honey's face when she spoke to a confused and homesick newcomer to the class. Miss Trunchbill, the headmistress, was something else altogether. Um, and Miss Trunchbull is the, the evil character. So Chris proposed... Uh, a spectrum of different kind of teacher books. Um, and I wanted to propose what social scientists often do, which is a two by two. Um, you take some dimension and you compare it against some other dimension. So there's, I think we have a lot of like great teachers and terrible teachers. There's like Miss Honey and Miss Trunchbill. That's one axis. But the Y axis is sort of effective and ineffective. Um, so there is the great, the, the teacher who is kindly and warm who unlocks something in us. There is the teacher who's kindly and warm and totally ineffective, mm. kind of a pushover. Mm -hmm. Like actually the school of rock is Jack Black's journey from warm teacher, bad outcomes to warm teacher, good outcomes. He actually starts out um, as kind of mean teacher and then becomes warm teacher and then he becomes warm teacher, good outcomes. Yeah. And there, um, so there's lots of terrible, traumatic teachers out there, but there also is a trope, I, I, I struggled to come up with literature ones, but um, of the terrible teacher who unlocks something in us. Snape. Um, the, yeah, 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 Snape, perfect. The, uh, or strict, I mean, or strict teacher, severe and strict, who still somehow encourages uh, growth. The music teacher from yeah. uh, uh, Whiplash, was that the name of that movie from a few years ago? Didn't see it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go find it. Almost all of the Hogwarts faculty <laughs> are rough people or sort of like rough process, good outcomes. Like Dumbledore is not sort of paving the path for right. poor Harry there. Um, McGonagall, you know, is on the sly on their side, but it's pretty fierce as well. I mean, I think that's a very British boarding school kind of thing. Um you know, which Miss Honey very much stands in opposition to. She is someone who is warm, nurturing, encouraging under her warm, nurturing, encouraging tutelage. Um, students grow and learn and develop new skills. Matilda's genius is nurtured. She eventually adopts Matilda at the end of it in sort of an act of selflessness. Um, but here's just uh, one great piece of, uh, of Miss Trunchbill, um, her strategies for teaching. So she goes into Miss Honey's classroom, starts quizzing kids, and when they're wrong, she yells at them and beats them. They're five years old, six years old. Um, and here's her, uh, and so she's just uh, asked uh, Eric how to spell what. 
And first he spells it W-O-T. Then he spells it W-H-O-T. And at this point, Miss Drunchbull is completely filled with rage and grabs Eric and picks him up by the ears. That's the way to make them learn, Miss Honey, she said. You take it from me. It's no good just telling them. You've got to hammer it into them. There's nothing like a little twisting and twiddling to encourage them to remember things. It concentrates their minds wonderfully. You could do them permanent damage, Miss Trunchbull, Miss Honey cried out. Oh, I have. I'm quite sure I have, the Trunchbull answered, grinning. Eric's ears will have stretched quite considerably in the last couple of minutes. They'll be much longer now than they were before. But there's nothing wrong with that, Miss Honey. I'll give him an interesting pixie look for the rest of his life. But, Miss Trunchbull, oh, do shut up, Miss Honey. You're as wet as any of them. If you can't cope in here, then you can go find a job in some cotton wool private school for rich brats. When you've been teaching for as long as I have, you'll realize that it's no good at all being kind to children. Read Nicholas Nickleby, Miss Honey, by Mr. Dickens. Read about Mr. Wackford Squeers, the admirable headmaster of Dotheby's Hall. He knew how to handle the little brutes, didn't he? He knew how to use the birch, didn't he? He kept their backsides so warm you could have fried eggs and bacon on them. This is like one of my like favorite uh, favorite kind of tropes where uh, a character has like wildly misunderstood a previous piece of literature. Right. You know, <laughs> like holding up Nicholas Nickleby as like a case for, you know, like corporal punishment. <laughs> Effective schooling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is, this right. is an Ed Reform right. text, yeah. actually. Like, like, you know, like not a Dickens satire. would be like, no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but, and Snape, ha- you know, has all of the Trunchbull qualities, except it's really to... Yeah, actually, you know, Trunchbull, Snape believes a lot of things Trunchbull does. Right. You know, you have to, you have to, you know, harden the students in order to get them. To, you have to hammer it into them. And, you know, once they're hard forged, then they'll be ready to face a, a cruel and uncertain world. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I mean, are we seeing, it's interesting because we picked very, very different kinds of works, all, all three of us. Are we seeing anything emerging about what our what are stories, what are the enduring stories about education or about teachers are telling us about education? Well, I do think one thing that cuts across all these is just the ubiquity of teacher characters for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think it's just the connection of storytelling is about human growth. The teaching profession is the profession of human growth. And so they naturally connect. Um, I mentioned before that there's a wonderful New Yorker article, which every time I search for it, it always seems to be free. It's by Adam Gottnick um, about the phantom toll booth um, after 50 years or 30 years or something. Um, and he writes, what does make the enduring magic of the phantom toll booth? As with every classic of children's literature, its real subject is education. The distinctive quality of modern civilization, after all, is that children are subjected to year after year after year of schooling. In the best-loved kids' books, the choice is often between the true education presented in the book, say, Arthur's through animals at the hands of Merlin Mm. in the Sword of the Stone, and the false education of the world and school. The child being read to and the adult reading is persuaded that self-reliance is a better model for learning than slavish obedience. Mm. Um, that, That all children's literature is about education in some form or another, that there will always be learner characters, teacher characters, and school is both ubiquitous. It's a place that we all are, we all know. And, I, and for many writers, Gapnik's arguing it's suspicious 
um, that school is not the place where the real learning happens. The real learning happens when you sort of get past the school structures that exist and into the real meat of whatever it is. You know, Merlin saying, come, uh, come on, boy, you can't learn about the fish but to become a fish. Right. Um, that's how you're going to learn about the water. That, yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, in the case of Milo, the character from Phantom Tollbooth, he's sort of his own teacher or maybe you could say he's like his own principal and he's encountering all of his his teachers and sort of hiring them and bringing them into his world learning from them through his little car and then moving on you know to the next the next teacher i mean what part of what that makes me think if you think about it i present a teacher who is really brilliant at nurturing at building confidence, at getting his students to like him. But as we said, he's not really academic, you know, um, and he's kind of got an easy thing to teach, rock and roll. I mean, that's pretty fun, right? And Bag is presenting teacher, at least, you know, in the Francine Prose book, a teacher who is breaking a fundamental rule uh, of education, a teacher who is is morally ambiguous, who really does something wrong, who's sort of breaking the covenant, Justin is presenting teachers as characters as opposed to protagonists. What it actually makes me wonder is, is there a really great work of fiction that accurately depicts teaching from a teacher's perspective, like good teaching from a teacher's perspective? You know, because, you know, Justin, you're making the point rightly so that education is growth and development, and that is the heart of stories. But that's, it's the kids' education. Like, what about the teacher's growth? Has anybody told that story, at least in fiction. I mean, you kind of get Angela's Ashes, I guess, or Teacher Man, which I haven't read. That was, yeah, that was one that I was thinking of mm -hmm. as we were talking about this, which just has some pretty extraordinary depictions, you know, compelling depictions of, of, of teaching in an Irish classroom and, that, you know, and some of his experiences as a student and a New York City classroom. I guess he's a student in Ireland and a teacher in New York City. Yeah, I haven't read it. I, maybe I should read that. That that sounds good. I mean, that's that's memoir, you know, as opposed to fiction. You know, we we've pointed out the trope, and it's often white savior, like the Michelle Pfeiffer one. You know, of these like white teachers going to inner city schools and making a or stand and deliver. I don't I don't quite I never I don't think I ever saw that one either. But to, um, yeah, you know, I the, but I think what I'm talking about is, you know, just the sort of in the same way that many novels are coming-of-age novels, you'd think that the story of a teacher learning their craft would make a good story from that protagonist's perspective. And it doesn't... That It feels like there's sort of a dearth, at least in the world of fiction. I should read Teacher Man, though. I mean, that's nonfiction, but that does sound good. Yeah, I'm having trouble... Uh, I'm, I'm, one is not leaping to mind, um, mm. but... You know, this could be this could be, you know, another reprisal of the all happy families are like and all unhappy families are unhappy right. in their own particular way. Um, you know, there's nothing to I, I mean, yeah, I mean, but we and then on the flip side, like we see plenty of like redemptive stories uh, that are positive in real life and, yeah. and in books, um, you know, mm -hmm. that are about a movement towards greater understanding. But yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Um, you know, I mean, like most narrative is predicated on like, you know, a problem or something not going well. Um, yeah. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm interested. I want to I want to uh, listeners, if you know of one, uh, please comment uh, in the comment section below this episode. 
I mean, The Wire is a pretty good example as I'm thinking about it. You have Presbaluski who starts out as a cop and he's a bad cop and, and he, you know, he beats up a kid and he eventually gets fired or washes out and he goes and becomes a teacher at a, you know, poor black school and he's flailing at first and he's too lenient, doesn't really know what he's doing and then we see him, you know, a year or two into his career, and he's, he's comfortable. And anyway, one of the things that's interesting, Justin, I think this is fascinating, is in the early scenes, he's clean sh- in the early episodes, he's clean-shaven. By the time he's a veteran teacher, it's only two or three years later, but he's grown a kind of a gray beard. And I thought that was an interesting depiction, you know, that that, that was a sort of subtle choice that that character made of establishing his adulthood, that he, he didn't want to look, you know, maybe a young police officer wants to look younger and shaves, you know, in order to, like, meet women or something like that. But then as a teacher, he sort of wants to look middle-aged so that the students I think te- will I think young teachers him. who teach for a couple of years think of themselves as having gone through a really powerful experience. I mean, yeah. maybe Abbott Elementary is the piece of media that we're looking for because Quentin Bronson does not come into that series as an excellent teacher, she, you know, her, I mean, her, yeah. her, her trope is very committed, very well studied, not practically particularly efficient. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, which strikes me as incredibly true. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots of young teachers who come into that. I mean, there's a sort of unusual feature of education schools where the way we train teachers is we often have them think about what would it look like to work in the best, most progressive, most nurturing possible environments. And then teachers go into schools and real classroom teachers are like, oh, don't do that. That is not how the real world works. Um, it's going to be, you want to move in that direction maybe, but like it's a lot of tricks. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, the, the nurturing relationships are balanced by order and structure and discipline. Um, and so she's surrounded by Quinta Bronson by all these veteran teachers who are sort of slowly giving her bits and pieces of like, well, this is what you would really need to do hmm. to make this work. Hmm. Um, you know, and part of what's sweet about the ensemble is you get a very strong sense that they're that they're all on the same mission together. Like these kids are from a tough neighborhood. They don't have a lot of resources of the kids in the affluent part of Philadelphia. And we don't have a lot of resources in the school, but we're going to give them the best education we can. Um, and, uh, you know, Quinta Bronson's, uh, yeah, her, her maturity is sort of learning how to keep her idealism while learning some craft that really works. It's a good point. I want to see it now. I've, I'd heard it was good. Um, but it sounds like the great American teacher novel is yet to be written. Could be. I mean, it should definitely be, it, it, to your point, it should definitely start out with struggle, right? It would be boring if that teacher arrives in year one and is immediately killing it. You know, you want a teacher who has to sort of, you know, discover some new capacity, who makes mistakes, who screws up, you know, who maybe even breaks some rules, you know, and, and has to emerge. So, class, what have we learned today? Well, what I enjoyed was was thinking across all of the different tropes that teachers come in, that, that, all, that all the different ways that teachers appear in media, you know, as heroes, as villains, um, in unexpected ways. I was, I was, you know, one we didn't talk about, but I was thinking about how important it is that Indiana Jones is a professor. Mm. Um, but it connects to what um, Chris was saying of this kind of like the discovery of teachers having a secret life. Mm. 
Um, you know, Indiana Jones's secret life is like particularly interesting. Um, but just knowing your teacher goes to the grocery store um, is one of these kinds of revelations uh, that appear. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to looking out for more teachers in literature, in film, seeing where they appear and what kind of roles they have. Yeah, I was, what was, I was watching something recently. Oh, The Breakfast Club. Um, mm. And it, I definitely remember thinking this would be a much better movie. You know, I don't know if you've seen it. I watched it for the first time a few weeks ago. Oh my um, God, What? That's amazing. Yeah, just one of those gaps in my childhood. I love um, it. I kind of like it. I, I, I find it kind of problematic. No, too. I love and, that you made it this far oh, without seeing I love the that Breakfast I made it Club. this far. I was like, do you love The Breakfast Club? I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I don't, it wouldn't be made today. There's some inappropriate stuff that happens. There's, there's some normalizing of kind of like sexual assault. The way, the way the other characters treat Molly Ringwald's character in the movie seems to be sort of justified because she's stuck up, but really they're just kind of sexually harassing her in my, in my opinion. And, but that, and they all, the other problem I have with it is the teacher who's keeping them in detention is just comically an asshole. And, and yeah, they need an antagonist. They need a common enemy, but man, that would be a better movie if that, you know, it, to even do what Richard Linklater and Joan Cusack did with that principle, which is she is behaving in some ways like an antagonist, but there's some kind of complexity to that. And it is, I think that's one thing that I am sensitive to is when teachers are depicted. I think a lot of times if you're telling stories about kids, you need an antagonist. So it's so tempting to make the teacher unnecessarily strict, brutal, abusive, or incompetent. Yeah, I'm going to be on the lookout. You know, writers, you know, make your teachers interesting. <laughs> make them human. You know, even if you're not, even if it's not a, a teacher protagonist story, the teachers are people. And if you need them to behave like antagonists for points of the plot, give them some reasons for doing that, some interesting reasons. Maybe it, attacks to the, maybe it attaches to the structure of education and the pressures they're under. Maybe, it, maybe there's some other complex thing going on in their life. Yeah, I think... Kind of going off of what you just said and then um, what Justin pointed out about like, or I can't remember who pointed it out, but just like, whoa, this is a lot of English teachers. Uh, like how many, how many novels that are not about English teachers and what you just said, Jesse, your admonition, like when we choose characters in our fiction, like you don't, you don't get, you don't ever get nothing can, nothing will ever come across as unintentional. I mean, this is like an old thing from creative writing classes, like especially to Chris Bagg. Well, yeah, of course not. <laughs> um, I mean, my students would be like, they would say things like, well, that, you know, that's just what happened. And I'm like, yeah, that's just what happened to you. But like, no sensible reader is just going to be like, things are just happening because it's a book. It's a created piece of media. Right. And it makes me think like the choice to pick an English teacher when you are writing a piece of literature it's like a wildly fraught choice because it's like, well, shit, now I've got this like voice piece for exposition. I could use that anytime I want. And it's like, no, don't do that. Um, but it just seems yep. like a real high wire act to select an English teacher or professor as your, and like, you know, I mean, but also it's, um, I think probably it gets you a little more mileage than picking, uh, 
now now I can't think of an example that wouldn't be interesting. Um, it's like, what's a subject that wouldn't necessarily be interesting? But then I'm like, nope, all those things are interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little, I think I'm a little tired of of English teacher protagonists, especially like English professor yeah. protagonists. And maybe it's just that, that that has something to do with my weariness of kind of MFA world and that the 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 darker side of those worlds even though you know the the great side of it is that people are learning about writing and trying to tell better stories and honing their craft and there's some great english professors out there but man there are a lot of books about english professors and i don't really know that we need any more for a while yeah maybe we could do a little moratorium yeah i want i want books about some like, math teachers yeah and like home science ec. teachers i want some home ec, home ec health you know, shop gym teachers <laughs> the great american chemistry teacher novel the great Amer- yeah 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 walter white's a chemistry teacher that would have been a good yeah exactly right yeah good... see there's a very interesting yeah uh maybe i'm the candidate for the so-so american gym teacher novel that's my that's what i will aspire to if you do it it'll be great <laughs> thank you <laughs> well gents should we wrap up uh upper middle brow is a small point production chris bag and jesse dukes are your sympathetic homeroom advisors your cool english teachers your surprisingly coherent math teachers and your even cooler drama and comedy instructors our guest today is justin reich professor of media studies and director of the teaching systems lab at the massachusetts bay institute of technology known to most people as mass tech check out his podcast teach lab for a metric ton of content about teachers and teaching and teachers growing the music is by ben pajak and mm-hmm, jesse dukes design and website by chris bag you can learn a lot more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. And as a reminder, listeners, uh, Jesse and I are both writers and editors, and you can hire us to help you with your writing, podcasting, or your editing project. You can see our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com. Get in touch if you'd like to talk about how we can help you with your project, big or small, or just get in touch. Uh, We are always happy to talk to other writers. Uh, Justin Reich, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Uh, We'll see you again on Upper Middle Brow one of these days. Yeah, I hope I get to come back, guys. It's always a pleasure. Mm